0: Hey, hello everyone, my name is Austin Kaiser and this is the Coffee Break Hems podcast. Uh, Welcome to episode number one where we are going to be talking about pressure support um, and the difference between a single and a bi-level of support. So this is gonna be a a first part of a probably three-part series over the next month and a half or so on all things pressure support. So I get a lot of questions from especially ground crews, but even some flight crews about the differences between BiPAP and CPAP. And a lot of people are pretty tentative to use these tools, uh, especially BiPAP, um, even in the flight realm. Uh, And they're tentative to use it because they can set it up on their ventilator no problem, but then they get to the point where they maybe need to make the patient comfortable, uh, and they need to maybe make some titrations, and they just aren't really knowledgeable about it and so they're much more likely to intubate the patient or just place them on some high flow O2 and kind of hope for the best during that 20 minute transport. So hopefully over the next 10 to 15 minutes we're going to demystify pressure support and make you a lot more confident about doing this in the field. So let's get right into it. Uh, we have a patient who is maybe a CHF patient who has been having an increasing uh, shortness of breath over the past few days. The ground crew gets there and places the patient on CPAP because that's what their protocol is and the patient magically starts to get better. And uh, they don't really know why the patient got better. They just know that CPAP is a lot of flow, and so the patient started to get better. And so we're going to break it down on really what that CPAP and what that single level of support is. So I have a question for you, and that question is what is oxygenation in our patient? In order to do that it's pretty simple let's go ahead and do a little breathing exercise so breathe in and out of your mouth just like you normally would Uh, well hopefully you're probably not a big mouth breather let's go ahead and breathe in and out of our nose like we normally would in any given breath so we are Breathing in and out normally, and everybody listening to this is probably um, thinking that this is a very infantile explanation of tidal volume. So this is the normal amount of volume that you move in and out of your lungs every breath. In a spontaneously breathing patient, which hopefully everybody listening to this is a spontaneous breathing patient, uh, your tidal volume is going to be somewhere in the neighborhoods of probably about 5 to 7 milliliters per kilogram of your ideal body weight. Now let's continue this breathing exercise, but right before you're about to start breathing in, so you're at the very bottom of your exhalation phase, we'll go ahead and force the remainder of the air out of your lungs, force as much out as you possibly can. So, there's a ton of volume in there. And what we just did was we forced out all of our expiratory reserve volume expiratory reserve volume, which is about 15 milliliters per kilogram, is the amount of air that's left in our lungs after we're normally done exhaling. There's an additional volume called our residual volume or our dead space, which is another 15 mls per kilo. And so the amount of volume that we leave in our lungs between breaths is about 30 milliliters per kilogram. And that is Is oxygenation so the ability for our lungs to have a a volume which we would refer to as our functional residual uh, volume Uh, our functional residual volume is about 30 milliliters per kilogram and that is what allows the oxygen time to diffuse across that alveolar capillary membrane uh, because we're not collapsing our alveoli between every single breath we're keeping some volume in there so if for some reason we have a patient who has reduced the volume that they're retaining in their lungs between breaths because of alveolar shunt like pus from pneumonia or fluid from congestive heart failure then we're going to have a patient who has a reduced oxygen saturation So imagine uh, you breathing in and out like you just were. Uh, We're kind of going up and then down and up and down and we're waxing and waning with this curve. And if you're a math person like I am, you would refer to it as like a sine curve. Um, So really when we say oxygenation, we should think of everything that sits below that sine curve all the way down to zero. That is oxygenation. So if we want to increase oxygenation in our patient all we have to do is somehow increase the amount of volume that they are retaining in their lungs between breaths and there's a couple ways that we can do that so there's a couple ways rather that we can increase oxygenation in our patient the first is that we can increase the amount of available oxygen that's reaching their alveoli. So instead of breathing for them at, uh, or excuse me, instead of uh, allowing them to breathe room air, we're going to increase the concentration of oxygen up to an FiO2 of 40 or 50 or 60 or what have you. So we're going to increase the concentration of oxygen that's entering their lungs. But remember that if you have somebody who has a, an FiO2 greater than 50%, uh, so an oxygen concentration greater than 50%, and they still don't have great saturations, then the most likely reason is alveolar shunt. So you either have collapsed alveoli from somebody who's breathing really shallow, you have fluid or pus from some sort of infection or some sort of cardiac cause, uh, but you uh, can put in as much flow into that lung, and you can put in uh, a 100% oxygen into that lung, but if it's not reaching the alveoli, then it's not going to be oxygenating the blood, and we're going to have all this blood going through the pulmonary capillaries and then back out to the pulmonary veins, and they passed by all of these alveoli, but they were all full of fluid, and so fresh oxygen was not able to get into them, and the patient's oxygen saturation is not going to improve despite the fact that you have increased the concentration of O2. So the only way that we can increase oxygenation if we have a high FiO2 is by increasing the volume we're leaving in the lungs between breaths. So we're going to force that person to keep air in their lungs uh, and we do that by increasing PEEP. So that's why CPAP works. We increase PEEP in the patient and we have a uh, we have a functional residual capacity that has decreased down to maybe 24, 25 milliliters per kilogram due to fluid, and now we are going to introduce PEEP and bring their their PEEP up to you know five or ten or whatever your policy says that you're supposed to do for this, and you are going to be increasing their functional residual capacity and increasing their oxygenation. So. Oxygenation problem equals PEEP and FiO2. And that's all good and dandy for your CHF or, uh, or your pneumonia patient. But what about the COPD patient? So generally, the oxygenation problem that they're having is the reason that they called one. but their real root problem is that they have a CO2 problem, right? They've got that ventilation problem. So we know how to manipulate their oxygenation. If we're having an oxygenation problem, we are going to adjust their PEEP and their FiO2 But what about these people that are having a ventilation problem like our COPDers? So in order to help these patients out, we need to answer the question, what is ventilation and how do we manipulate it? And it's very simple. All we need to do is manipulate their minute volume. So in order to manipulate somebody's minute volume, we need to know what the components are. So in order to generate a minute volume in our patients, we're gonna take the volume of breath that they take, which let's just say this patient has an ideal body weight of 80 kilos, so this is a pretty tall person. Uh, Their their, their, uh, tidal volume at seven mLs per kilo is gonna be about uh, 560 milliliters. So in order to see how much volume they're moving in and out of their lungs per minute, we're going to take that 560 milliliter breath and multiply it by their respiratory rate, which we will just say 12 for, uh, for ease of argument uh, or for ease of math, excuse me. And so their minute volume is going to be about 6.7 liters. And all you do is take that 560 milliliters and multiply it by 12, and you get their minute volume, which in this patient is about 6.7 liters per minute. Now, if this patient has a high CO2, a CO2 of 60, and we want to drive that CO2 down, we need to increase the amount of volume that they are moving in and out of their lungs per minute. And in a spontaneously breathing patient, we can't really touch that respiratory rate, right? We can't say, hey, dude, I need you to breathe faster for me and breathe off more of your CO2 because they're already fatigued and they're going to look at you like you're the biggest idiot on the face of the planet. So we can't really touch their Respiratory rate, but what we can absolutely touch is the tidal volume. So let's take this patient who is breathing 7 mLs per kilo, so he's breathing about 560 milliliters per breath, and we want to go ahead and increase that minute volume up to let's say 10 liters per minute. So all we're going to do is we're going to increase the amount of pressure that we are giving to this person during his inspiratory phase when he's breathing in and make him uh, consequently take bigger breaths. So if we increase the amount of uh, the amount of pressure, the amount of force that this um, person is seeing as soon as they start breathing in, they're going to take deeper breaths without feeling any type of increased discomfort. And oftentimes it'll make them feel a lot more comfortable. And we're going to see that their tidal volumes now increase maybe up to 750 milliliters per breath. And now we are going to see a pretty good drop in their So what do we call that, that increasing the amount of pressure that they're seeing during the inhalation phase? We call that pressure support. So we're going to increase their pressure support if they are having a ventilation problem as a recap if somebody's having a ventilation problem meaning that they have a high co2 we are going to increase their pressure support if somebody unless they have a profound metabolic acidosis and you put them on bipap because they may be were um, a chf patient but you put them on bipap on your ventilator and you put them on their default settings of 16 over 6 and you see that their tidal co2 is now eight, then you should probably back off on that pressure support uh, in order for them to retain a little bit more CO2. So a CO2 problem change the pressure support, the inspiratory support. If they have an oxygenation problem, we are going to manipulate their PEEP and their FiO2 in order to get saturations above 93%. So the last little topic is what even is 16 over 6 or 10 over 5 or whatever starting settings that you normally do. And so let's take that top number and I'm going to use 16 over 6 because that is the uh, starting settings that I see quite frequently. And so 16 over 6, let's take that 16. What is that 16? It is our IPAP or our Inspiratory Positive Airway Pressure and what we can think of when we look at that 16 is we can think of that as our PIP, as our peak inspiratory pressure. So that is the total amount of pressure in the circuit at the peak of inspiration. So that is our 16. The bottom number is our EPAP, or our expiratory positive airway pressure, and we can think of that as our PEEP. So if we have 16 over 6, our IPAP is 16, and our EPAP, or our PEEP, is 6. So how do we get our pressure support? Because I haven't talked about inspiratory pressure support. And that is going to be the difference between 16 and 6. So if we actually look at our numbers of 16 over 6, we have our IPAP of 16, we have our EPAP of 6, which gives a difference of 10, meaning that our pressure support, our inspiratory pressure support is going to be 10. A lot of people will also refer to that as the delta or the driving pressure, that 10. and. A, a delta of 10 is pretty substantial, and that would uh, really be reserved for somebody who has a ventilatory problem, which makes sense, right? So if somebody has a ventilation problem, they need a higher pressure support in order to help to normalize their CO2, and so they would need that high delta or that high driving pressure. Somebody who has a purely oxygen problem needs a very small delta, so they could have an IPAP uh, or an IPAP and an EPAP of maybe 12 over 10, and so they have uh, they have a PEEP set at 10, and their pressure support is only going to be two. Right, the difference between the IPAP and the EPAP is our pressure support. So they would only have a pressure support of two and a PEEP of 10 because that oxygenation problem doesn't need a big uh, big driving pressure, a big uh, a big delta or pressure support in order to. Uh, in order to make them feel more comfortable so all right guys I hope that made sense to everybody uh, as a 15 second recap. If we have a CO2 problem, we're going to change our pressure support. If we have an O2 problem, we're changing our PEEP and FiO2. And that 16 over 6 or that 10 over 5, that's going to be our IPAP over our EPAP. And in order to see what your inspiratory positive, or excuse me, your inspiratory pressure support is, you need to minus those two. Uh, so I hope that all of you guys join us for parts two and three of the pressure support series here. Uh, Part two is going to be talking about how to make somebody comfortable on BiPAP. And then part three is going to be uh, maybe using the CPAP setting in lieu of uh, high flow nasal cannula when we're facilitating a transport uh, out of a facility so I thank everybody for stopping by. If you guys have any questions, feel free to reach out to me at akaiser at And I'll see you guys in two weeks for part two.